Christmas is a hard time for a lot of people because we're in difficult circumstances. We're heartbroken. Life's been hard. Then we start introducing all these different ideas of hope and peace and joy and, and everything tells you that's what you should be experiencing. That's what Christmas is about. We sing, God rest ye merry gentlemen, let nothing you dismay. The fact is, many of us come into Christmas dismayed. The rest of the world is marrying away, and we're wallowing. We're lonely. We're hurt. We're fearful. And we feel like we're outsiders looking in. We're exempt from the season. And what I want to say to all of us today is that those of us who are in the most pain, those of us that are experiencing the deepest crisis are the ones that are perfectly situated to celebrate Christmas. You're exactly where God can be found. And that's what Advent reminds us of. It's the people that are walking in darkness that see the light. It's on those living in the land of the shadow of death that the light dawns. God comes into our anguish, our longing, our searching, and when we find him in those moments, the hope that we experience is the most meaningful of all when it comes. Because it's not the hope that the world talks about, and the peace we experience is not the peace that the world talks about. And I think that's ultimately the message of this series. We've been focusing on the themes of the season, and what we found is that while these terms of each candle and each week are very common expressions, especially this time of year. What Christ brought, what God makes possible, is something altogether different. Let's just review quickly. The first week we looked at this great hope that is ours. It's interesting how the writers of the New Testament, inspired by the Holy Spirit, reinvent every one of these words from their everyday human ideas. It's not enough just to say hope. They refer to it as a living hope. It's a living hope. It's alive. It's eternal. It's something that you don't just wish for. It's something you can bank on. You can plan your life on. That's the hope that Christ gives us. The second week, we looked at peace. We learned that it was shalom, not not lack of hostility or the different types of peace that we think of, but it's Christ's own peace, my peace I give to you. And he made sure to say, it's not like anything else in this whole world, because it's about peace with God. And then last week, we should have looked at joy. We'll double back and pick that up next week. But it's described by Peter, not just as joy, it's inexpressible and glorious joy. And next week, you come back, we'll, we'll look at why that's different than any other joy that the human spirit can experience and know. And so today, we come to this fourth gift, love. How do the writers of the Gospels in the New Testament make this idea of love something different than the normal human experience? They don't add adjectives and descriptives to it like the other terms we've looked at. It's all in the choice of the word they use. You see, for us, we use the word love 
mention all sorts of uh, affections. We, in one sentence, would say we love the patriots, we love apple pie, and we love our wife. And those better be three very different emotions that we're discussing. We have this single all-purpose word. No wonder we get in trouble when we say I love you to somebody because what I'm thinking you mean by that might be very different than you intend. The Greeks, however, very colorful language, had many words that related to that one word love. The four that we most commonly think of were uh, summarized by C.S. Lewis in his book, The Four Loves. And I just want to run through those quickly with you today as we look at what this love, this Advent love, God's love, is meant to be. So let's, let's look at those four loves. The first is storge. Storge is love that comes out of common experience or familiarity. It's often referred to as family love. Storge is that type of emotional connection you make with somebody because you've been through it together. People that are survivors of 911 have a bond based on that experience that they would otherwise never have. They may have absolutely nothing in common, but you get them together. There is a connection. There is a love. I mean, a true love just based on that common experience. Family love is most often storge love because you don't pick your family. <laughs> you just get them. You have to love them because the experiences are part of the love. I'm going to go down uh, with my family, my immediate family. We're going to stay at my brother's house this Christmas. Five kids, now all adults, all in our 50s and 60s. And uh, there's a reason why we live seven hours apart from one another. I'm going to take that out of the podcast in case they're listening. We have very different viewpoints on things but we're drawn to one another. We love each other. My brother and I pick up where we left off every time we're together. You know, there's some things we don't talk about because we just know that we'd see them differently, but that's not what draws us together. What draws us together is our history, our memories. We've banged it out together, but we've also stood shoulder to shoulder against hardships, and that creates a bond. That's storge. The second love is philia. What famous uh, city is named after philia philadelphia we think of it as brotherly love it's really camaraderie it's friendship love it's a love based on mutual care mutual commonality we find that we share so much of life together we choose companionship with one another philos the third is eros we get the word erotic from it for the Greek meant romantic love, sensual love. It was not just sexuality, but it certainly was a big part of it. It was that connection to someone that was so deep that it just led you to physical connection and expression. It's what we very often think of as the type of love on which marriages should be based. All of these are excellent forms of love, and my earnest hope is that you experience all of them but they all are conditional and impermanent. And that's why they could never be the love that God brings because what God brings is complete and full. And when the writers of the Gospels were looking to capture the type of love that God was bringing in Christ and that Christ was speaking about, they landed on a word for love that was not commonly used in that day. 
You could think of certain words that were, you know, hip to use when we were kids, like the word hip, (laughs) that no longer fit. Well, there was a word for love that had been left out. And, of course, you know what that is. What is it? Agape love, unconditional love, or God's love. It's love that is not based on anything that we have been through together. It's not just storge. It's not just love based on our common belief or faith. Certainly in the community of faith, there's a phileo love. Certainly not eros. No, this agape requires nothing. It just gives. It is completely selfless and unconditional. It's why we can say of God's love, there's nothing that you could possibly do that would make God love you less if you're his child, but it's also true there's nothing you could do that would make him love you more. He chooses to love you, and you can bank on it forever. That's the love that God sent us along with Jesus Christ. Now, where do we go to explore the impact of that love and why it's so different than any other form of love and why when you have that love, marriages last a lifetime and families stay in touch with each other and churches show the world Jesus by being one because it's not conditional. You don't fall out of that kind of love. When you tell somebody, I'm ending this marriage because I don't love that person anymore, I guarantee it wasn't agape that you're talking about. It was one of those others because those are conditional. They do fail you. They do fail you. God's love does not fail, and when we commit even to one another based on that love, it's eternal in that sense. So where do we go in Scripture to capture the depth and meaning of it? And there's so many places, of course. You're doing one sermon on the subject of love, and you've got the whole Bible in front of you. Where do you go? Where I found myself this week was in Romans chapter 8, and I invite you to turn there with me. Romans chapter 8. Paul spends a great deal of time in the early chapters of the book of Romans talking about the gospel, which is the greatest love story in history, God's love for humanity and for you and me as individuals. We broke off our relationship with him that we were meant to have, and sin separated us and put us under condemnation. But God reconciled us to himself in Christ, and so now In this section, he's exploring the impact of that on us. So we begin at verse 28. I love this passage. I love this passage. I pray the Holy Spirit makes this ring in your hearts as I read it. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? 
He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble, or hardship, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or the sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loves us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels, nor demons, neither the present, nor the future, nor any powers, neither height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's agape love. What I want to do is explore four truths, four things that we can count on because of God's unconditional love for our life. And the first is about our circumstances. And this is a hard one, but it's truth. And those of us that have experienced it in hard circumstances know the power of it. And that is that in our circumstances, there is good. And we know that in all things, God works for the good for those who love him and who have been called according to his purposes. When struggle happens in our life, we look up and go, why God? Why bring this hardship? And one of the things that I commonly say, and I think it's worth reminding ourselves, is that God nowhere in the Bible defends himself for the hardships that come into our life. Sometimes he takes credit for them. Sometimes God brings the hardships. When he does, it's out of love in order to get us online, to bring us back to him. But God doesn't take credit for every hard thing that happens because there's this thing called free will. Not just your free will, but the free will of others. How do you give people free will without allowing the results of those choices to impact the race? God never defends himself. So when we come to him in hardship and say, why? He's silent. And what we've seen through our whole story through the biblical narrative, whether it's the fiery furnace, or the lion's den, or this season, a cave for animals, and a feeding trough. God comes into the mess of our life. He meets us in the fire. He meets us in the heartache. He is familiar with our grief, Scripture says. Why? Because he's present in it. God promises he's there. It's the one thing he says about our hardships. And the second thing, is that he won't waste it. He will redeem it in some way. And that's what Paul means when he says, God is in all circumstances for our good. Christians that stand up and say, if you love Jesus, you won't have a bad time in life, that you're gonna be healthy and wealthy and things are gonna be blessed, aren't reading this Bible. And they're sure not reading this passage. Let's look at just a short list of the things that Paul admits are a part of our life. Let me go back to them. Trouble, hardship, Persecution, famine, nakedness. Thank God I've never experienced that except wanting to. (laughs) 
Oh, I'm sorry, that's too much information, isn't it? <laughs> Danger, the sword, death, demons, the future. Doesn't that haunt most of us? Powers, in other words, influences of this world that are beyond our reach. Right in this passage, we see an honest description that all these things are part of our life. What does God promise? That because he loves us, he won't waste it, he'll use it. And let's read on what he says. He says he uses it according to his purposes. And so we really need to ask the question, what is the good that God promises to come out of these things? Because it's not often what we think it's gonna be. What is the good? Well, he explains it right here. His purpose, in verse 29, is that we would be conformed to the likeness of his son. The ultimate good that God is doing through the hardest circumstances in our life is shaping us through them, because you'll never be shaped without struggle. You'll never be shaped without pain, without a chisel at work in the hardened areas of your life. You see, here is what we need to remember. We think the biggest problem in our life to hope and peace and joy are the circumstances of our life. We think that's what God needs to deal with. But you know what your biggest obstacles are to the hope and peace and joy that makes life meaningful? And they're the same for me. It's your character. It's you. It's the decisions you make and the reactions and the the hidden intentions that have built up in your life from every experience you've ever had that you're not willing to admit are there or that you don't even know are there. There are things that drive us, that drive our responses to things that only God knows and his greatest gift out of hardship is making us more like Christ. I'm so grateful for the experiences I've gone through in these last years because I can look at who I am and recognize by God's grace I'm not the man I was a decade ago. I I, kind of liked that guy 10 years ago. He wasn't a bad guy, but I like who I am, what I've learned, and the grace I've received, and I like seeing God at work in my life, but I also know what it takes. It takes the shaping hand of God, and hardship is how he gives us that greatest good in our life. So circumstances, we can count because of God's love, there's gonna be good in it. Second thing is about our future, and the promise that we have is that in our future, because of God's love, there will be glory. Verse 30, and those he predestined, he also called, and those he called, he also justified, and those he justified, he also glorified. Now, this is a very theologically rich passage. So I I just want to talk for a minute about this idea of foreknowledge because it begins this whole cadence of things that God does that are part of his work of redemption for us. When we talk about foreknowledge, some, because of the whole issue of free will, hate the notion that God in some ways set us apart for salvation, even though Scripture somehow teaches that as a truth, even as it says anybody who wants it can have it. We don't like that conflict. The Bible seems comfortable with it. So when we get to this side of God's sovereignty, this idea of foreknowledge is very specific in the Greek. It is not that he foresaw. He didn't look down through the corridors of time and know that at some point you'd accept Jesus as your Savior, and then based on his knowledge of your decision, he made the decision to call you. That ruins the whole idea of this passage, but it satisfies our need to be in control of our destiny. So we said he foresaw, but that's not the Greek. And it also doesn't mean that he knew about us. 
The Greek word is that he knew us experientially. He knew us emotionally. Now, here's what I think is an accurate paraphrase of the word foreknowledge. God foreloved. He loved us first. And the Bible does say that. We only love him because he first loved us. He saw us before time itself began, and he loved us in advance. And out of that, he called us, and he redeemed us. He justified us. And then there's this last term, he glorified us. Now, that's kind of odd because that idea of glorification is a future reality for us. If you and I were teaching it, we might say God loved us before eternity began, and based on that, he predestined us, he called us, and he justified us, and someday he's going to glorify us. That's how you and I would say it if we were thinking in terms of a timeline. But Paul says, it's already done. It's already done. And what that means is, because the love of God is so trustworthy, when we become a child of God, our future is already an accomplished fact. So because of God's love for you, your future is about glory. The third thing he talks about has to do with judgment and accusation. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who can bring any charge against those whom God loves and has chosen? The imagery here is a court of law. God is the judge. Jesus is the defense lawyer on our behalf. In the heavenly realm, Satan is known as the great accuser, the one who points out all the moral failures and demands that God punish. And when the accuser comes up and says, look at the darkness in that man. Look at the failure in that woman. Jesus says, yeah, yeah, they did that. But I paid for it. And you know that phrase that says, if God is for us, Who can stand against us? Paul's seeing God as the judge and letting you know that because of his love for us, he's already decided the case. He's decided in our favor. The judge of all heaven does not stand against you, but because of Christ, he is for you. And so because of that, even though We have failed morally. When it comes to God's judgment, if we are in the love of Christ, we are guiltless. Not to say that we were not at one time guilty, but in Christ, we've been cleansed of that and we are now guilt-free. You can count on that because of Christ's perfection and God's grace and his agape love. And then the fourth area is about God's affection. God's affection, it's so beautiful. I can't even preach it. I can't improve on it. In some ways, I still don't get it. All I can do is read it. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble, hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, the sword? No, in all these things, we are more 
than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced. How can I be convinced? Note the clear determination and certainty that Paul uses throughout this whole passage. How can I be so certain? Because God's love is unconditional and eternal and I can bank on it. And so because of that, I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present or the future, nor any power, nor height, nor depth, or anything else in all of creation. I like the way he pretty much covers everything and then makes sure, in case I missed it, nothing anywhere ever created can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And what that tells us is that God's affection is guaranteed. It's guaranteed. I just love that. I want to end simply by reminding ourselves of that together. I want to say Romans 8 together. I'd like you to say it as though it's God's word to you and you're saying it with the confidence that Paul evokes. Nothing in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Say it again. Nothing. Amen. So think about this. Christmas is about Emmanuel, God with us. But when we bring this idea of the immense, unconditional love of God into the equation, it's not just that God is with us, but because he is, God is for us. Let's pray. Father, what great hope and peace and joy we find in this anchoring gift. It was your immense love for us at the dawn of time that birthed Jesus into this world, that births new life into us, that brings a living hope and your peace, not as the world gives, and an inexpressible and glorious joy and an unconditional love. Therefore, we are confident that you who began a good work will be faithful to bring it to completion. Father, I just pray that you will make so much more of that than my words could possibly in each of our hearts, in Jesus' name. Now the hope of Christ, anchor your soul. The peace of Christ, guard your mind. The joy of Christ, fill your spirits to overflowing. And the love of Christ, renew your hearts. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.